when I give a talk about my about the Orpheus clock, I'm I'm always approached by people afterwards who come up and say, oh, "We're so pleased you 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 carried on fighting." Our family lost, you know, and I get, you know, you get the personal tale uh, of what each individual's family had lost, and um, mostly they, they, the 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 primary purpose was to stay alive, to build a new life somewhere else. Uh, most people got out with the shirt on their back, if that, and so reconstructing the past here is is not easy and is very painful. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and that was art researcher and author Simon Goodman. During our conversation, Mr. Goodman shares the background that led to writing The Orpheus Clock, how he has gone about seeking restitution of the art and silver collections looted by the Nazis during World War II from his family, the Gutmanns. The Senate judiciary testimony he's given to extend the statute of limitations for such claims. The kinds of impediments that still exist for claimants. And what spurs him on to continue his fight. Simon Goodman, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you for inviting me, Stephanie, and uh, and thank you for your interest in my story and my family's history. Your book, The Orpheus Clock, is a gripping account of your family's history and the Nazi-looted art and silver collections uh, that nearly went to the grave with your father. Would you share a bit about how the book came about? Um. Well, I grew up in the dark in London after the war with my brother, and uh, we had no idea what our father was doing. He, he never had a real job. I mean, after he'd survived the war, he'd fought in the British Army and uh, was nearly killed. But uh, as soon as peace was declared, he was taking off for Holland and Europe, and we had no idea as kids what he was doing, and he never told us. Uh, and honestly, we didn't really figure it out until... He died some 50 years after the war, and my brother and I inherited his old correspondence. And from that, we pieced together that um, he'd been spending all his time effectively hunting for his parents and our family's uh, lost and looted art collection. And he hadn't recovered very much, as it turned out. And so... I made it my quest, my my mission to to carry on, even though he never asked me to when he was still alive, probably because he encountered mostly disappointment and rejection. On the other hand, when I started doing this uh, in, well, I found my first painting here in the States in Chicago in 1995. So I've been doing this now for 25 years. And honestly, when I started doing this, there was nobody else. You know, this was a dead story. Um, well, there we are. I mean, that that's sort of a, my, my introduction. Why, why don't you carry on and I'll, I'll see where we go from here. That case, the, uh, the Chicago collector, that painting yeah. in that case, that was the first major restitution 
suit of Nazi looted art in the United States. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, it was really the first uh, major or not. I mean, nothing uh, about Nazi loot had ever gone to to court as far as I'm aware. Um, And nothing had been returned particularly there. There had been no restitutions that, that I'm aware of um since the 60s so um it it was uh, and just as i said i I thought the whole issue of what the germans had taken had somehow miraculously been settled um uh, this was a very naive belief of mine and uh you know the more we dug into it the more i realized <laughs> i was seriously mistaken but i mean the big difference between say my generation and my father's is that when i started doing this the internet was mm-hmm. just sort of opening up um also it was exactly 50 years after the end of the war the allies had started opening their national archives at least the the section of which dealt with um the end of the war and it specifically the uh interviews with the nazi looters and what they'd done with the what they'd taken so um not only did the u.s archives but then the british the the dutch the west germans the french all followed suit so suddenly uh <laughs> there was a wealth of information and um so so it it all became it all started falling into place really um and i've i've not stopped since i mean the more i uncover the more i realize is still missing i mean admittedly we we had quite a large collection but uh it's still indicative of the fact that the the nazis stole really everything they could uh, and uh there were thousands of pieces alone just taken from my grandparents' home. And you got a lot of that information from the Nazi inventories themselves that were taken, is that right? That that That's right, yes, yes. I mean, my, my father had little scraps of paper compared to what I found in German and Dutch archives. Um, there are, apart from some short inventory forced sales mostly for important paintings or important pieces of silver um there were three large inventories of of what was in the house each numbering hundreds of pieces and in in two instances they uh literally go room by room so uh it's very they're very detailed and they even had things that were hanging on the stairway going upstairs and that sort of thing so from that i was able to piece together yes uh the scale of of what they had taken and of and from that i've been working ever since to try and find what they did with it (laughs) the final inventory by the way of over 400 pieces is still completely missing i've I've mostly uh, recovered the the first inventory and um, three quarters of the second inventory, or or accounted for. That so let's say. And was there also a letter that uh, your grandfather had written to your aunt Lily, and that referenced, I believe, was it three paintings that had been sent before the war for storage in Paris. Um. 
it, it was a little note he scribbled at, actually on, on note paper he'd saved from the Ritz Hotel in Paris. Um, it, it mentions more than just three paintings. It, it, um, it, it, it does specify three Impressionist paintings that were hidden in Paris, but there were also um, other Renaissance works and some important furniture. And then he also went on to mention the fact that there were some artworks supposedly, you know, uh, in safe hands in New York that belonged to us as well. But that that's a, a sort of separate story that actually hasn't fully been resolved to this day. Um, I mean, yes, so that was a hint of, of just some of the things that we should be looking for, but it's it was the tip of the iceberg. I mean, in my grandfather in Paris alone that I've now been able to quantify had at least 60 uh, paintings and uh, important antiques and artworks in storage in Paris. So that that's just and that's one venue there. The, and then, as I said, there were more things in New York, uh, more still. I later discovered that he'd sent to Switzerland for safekeeping. And then there was even a, a, a completely separate collection that his private bank in Amsterdam had that my aunt and my father knew nothing about because the, the children were never allowed in the bank. So uh, <laughs> it, it, it's, uh, as I say, that, that one little note was a, gr a gr great uh, piece of evidence and uh, was crucial in a few cases, but um, doesn't really give any indication of the scale of things. In that first case that you were talking about uh, with the Chicago collector, that yes. um, there was a, a documentary film by Ann Weber about that case, yes. Making a Killing. It's a very well done film and such a gut wrenching story. And your Aunt Lily in it, she, you know, exhibits a an understandable attitude that it's at her age having to deal with this is such a, a challenge. And yet she was a, a vital um, link to, uh, to piecing this together as well. Is that right? Uh, well, honestly, yes and no. Um, she had been determined with her brother, my father to get back what they could. And, uh, that had largely kind of come to a, a halt um, because the the German government in particular had become so obstructionist. And it, the Dutch government, for instance, what little they could get out of the Dutch, uh, they had to pay for literally. So the, the whole thing, and they never got any compensation from the French. So uh, on one hand, yes, my, my aunt was an inspiration and certainly... Uh, I, it was invaluable when I was starting on, on this quest of mine to be able to run things by her. But very soon I realized that um, I was discovering far more than she had ever known about. She actually left Holland uh, to go to a finishing school in Florence in Italy when she was still actually in her, her late teens. Uh, and, and my father similarly had gone to England and then had gone to Cambridge University. So neither of them really um, are after 1936 or 37 went back to Holland much. 
Um, and uh, then, then there's a whole other aspect that my aunt, like uh, so many who had gone through the war and survived, uh, my father was even worse, they couldn't talk about it. So on, on one hand, she might have been a mine of information, but getting it out of her <laughs> was like pulling teeth. Uh, and then when I actually told her at one point that I was going to write a book, uh, the Orpheus clock, she was actually horrified to begin with. And uh, I mean, that that changed when the book actually was translated into Italian and my publisher reached out to her. She started attending uh, events around the book and started talking even and actually went on a little lecture tour at the age of about 95. <laughs> and so, so at that point, she actually finally, but it, it was very very hard work she did ultimately um open up as much as she was you know able to as as much as anybody from that generation can but um she yes she was an inspiration certainly just because of her doggy her determination and the fact that she and my father ne never gave up you know i mean as soon as germany was reunited my father started firing off letters again you know, when the wall came down, but then he, he died shortly after, so that didn't come to anything either. That generation's uh, inability to talk about what had happened, and mm -hmm. that, that is one of the, one of several of the unique circumstances that I think that Ann Weber was referring to in the documentary about, and, and many people have talked about this, is the idea that Nazi looted art and the unique circumstances surrounding those trying to uh, find it and get it back, that there, that wasn't given very much weight in that early 90s into even today. Would you agree? I mean, that, that that's very true. I mean, the, the, the point is that at the end of the war, when most people, I hope, realized the scale of the um, genocide that had taken place, um, that effectively dwarfed everything else. That was the largest organized murder in, in the history of mankind, really. But uh, it's, uh, it's unfortunate that that acted as a smokescreen, in a sense, that the because of the enormity of that crime, all lesser crimes effectively were, were obscured. And uh, had the looting in itself taken place in a vacuum at some other point in time, it would have been the largest scale organized robbery in the history of mankind, too. But uh, Yes, it, it 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 didn't really receive much attention at all after the war. I mean, the reality is that the world, certainly Europe, was in ruins, and um, the intention of the Allies was to get at least Western Europe back on its feet again as fast as possible. So, individuals, uh, you know, we you I think you've in one of your other. Um, talks, you, you've, you've mentioned the Monuments Men, who of course did a wonderful job, but the, the reality is they weren't there for very long, and what they did recover, the vast majority of it was, was not returned to the rightful owners, but it was turned over to the country, the new governments in the countries from which whatever artwork had been taken from. So, um, 
at, at that point, uh, th- there was no organized restitution system, uh, you know, on, on a on a European on a scale the way uh, things had been looted on a on a national international scale. So. The heirs, the, the owners or those who still survived or their heirs otherwise, um, had to claim individually. They First, they had to figure out where things had got taken from, and then they had to file individual claims. My, my father filed alone, this is, and this is primarily from memory, um, over a thousand individual you know, multi-page claims with uh, primarily the Dutch government. And uh, it, it was up to governments like the Dutch, the French, the West Germans to either be generous or not. And in most cases, they couldn't. They they didn't want to deal with the individual claimants because they they, they from their perspective had bigger fish to fry. They you know they, uh, in Holland, for instance, um, the, the first winter after the war, there was actually mass starvation. So. Uh, they they weren't and actually they this is rather it's not sad depressing um individual dutch jews coming back saying oh that's mine that was my apartment that was my father's shop that was my uncle's car that's our silver uh these claimants were treated in a, in a, in a way as if they were unpatriotic because they they were taking away from so-called um, you know patriots who'd survived the war and claimed they'd opposed the Germans, and uh, it was it was highly inconvenient, and therefore the claimants were shut up as much as possible, and uh, the British and American press didn't really pay much attention to them because I mean of course you know world events were much bigger. The next thing is we're dropping atomic bombs on Japan and, and so on and so and then it, the world turned on a dime and suddenly the Russian allies who fought with us during the war were our new enemies and the anti-Nazi, the, the denazification programs in Germany were all ended by 1948 and uh, people got off with a slap on the wrist and they were told to go back to work because we had a new enemy. So, so somebody like my father claiming in Germany, for instance, would come up against the, the same civil servants that had been there during the Nazi era. And, uh, you know, half the Ministry of Finance hadn't changed by you know 1958 so uh they had no incentive to do the right thing because they were all effectively covering up what the the residue of of what they'd all been involved with so it it had to wait for another generation like mine uh and especially you know meanwhile a younger generation in germany had been seriously indoctrinated about the evils of, of fascism so um my, my generation effect became the first to really deal with this 60 it was then you know a 70 year old problem um and you've given senate judiciary testimony to uh, extend the statute of limitations to be able to bring claims yeah. uh, due to those kinds of uh, delays that were rather necessary. Well, that's right, because the, the whole uh, 
statute of limitations issue is is very problematic. Normally, um, under common law, if somebody buys something and then nobody claims for it, uh, you know, as having been stolen at some point within whatever it is, five or ten years, they get clear title. Uh, but in, in the case of, of, of looting during World War II, the problem is that um, the original owners, by and large, were actually killed. And those that survived, survived without any documentation. You know, my, my, my grandfather's library was taken as well, and our papers were burned and so on. So um, the, the issue is... Uh, we don't know where things have been taken, where they've been hidden. It's completely by chance if you if you find something. I mean, and and so yes, I try to explain that um, in in so many cases the names of paintings have been changed or, or, or artworks. The attributions uh, to whichever artist have also changed. In in many instances, the frames have gone or whatever. So. Th- the dimensions have changed. <laughs> you see, so everything is, is so trying to find what, even if you know what was taken from your family, trying to find it is an enormous task. And um, that's why I, I argued, and you know, I, I, I was chosen, I suppose, because of I've been doing this longer than anybody else, and uh, I have firsthand experience of what it's like to track something trace it and then document a claim and then actually file a claim so the way it was restructured was that uh, the clock wouldn't start ticking until um somebody had actually located uh, a work of art that had belonged to their family and then you have six years to prove your case or to you know file your claim and document it so uh it's it's a lot better than it used to be. How, however, the, the you know the American legal system is such that even though this is a step in the right direction, it doesn't effectively nullify other laws such as latches, for instance, um, which you know effectively we have a sort of a contradictory situation now where depending on how a, a court sways, you know, it, it could go either way depending on which law they focus on. So um, still not 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 a very satisfactory situation, but it, it's better than it used to be, I suppose. Yeah, I was going to ask your thoughts on how or if you've had the experience in one of your cases where the latches defense has been used against you, even though the HERE Act that you're talking about, the Holocaust Expropriated Art Recovery Act, even though it's in place and is supposed to uh, remove time bars, have you had personal experience where the latches defense has been still brought up against you? Um, well, yes, just recently, uh, yes, it, it got thrown at me. I mean, you know, the complaint was that I hadn't filed uh, a, a claim in, in, you know, promptly. Um, and, uh, you know, I tried to argue that I, I didn't know where the artwork was at the time, so who would I file it, the claim against? Um, the reality is, um, I, I realize you, you're, you're interested in the legal aspect of, of, of you know, the, this huge restitution story, but in, in practice, I've 
gone out of my way as much as possible to avoid the legal process because um, one, it's fraught with problems such as you know these kind of defences that can be thrown against you by by the defendants, and two, just the cost of the legal process, particularly in the United States where 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 I live, where I'm a resident. So um, I found more effective to negotiate privately with um, the current possessors and particularly using the aspect of the fact that um, my family won't sign off on an artwork until a settlement has been reached and therefore whatever we're talking about, whatever piece we're talking about, effectively doesn't have any value until um we, we 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 sign a waiver so they can't resell it they can't even give it to somebody they can't even lend it to to an exhibition and, and that's become my my sort of biggest tool in a sense in in uh, how to negotiate these things so it's become a process of of compromise more than uh litigation but uh it's more effective frankly uh, as a result I, I i keep getting results um you know there are other families who take the moral high road uh, and insist on just having something returned to them which of course i would like you know <laughs> in a perfect world if somebody you know actually gives something back or all, all the better of course but in practice that doesn't happen very often, and e e even when you sue them. So um, I, I, I've learned that I, I prefer, I think, and my family agree with how I do this, um, that the process of compromise and negotiation has produced uh, one settlement after another. Um, so uh, here I am 25 years later. I just had a very successful sale of a wonderful early Italian Renaissance panel by Uccello in London at the end of July. Um, I, I have another piece coming up next July in London as well. Um, and um, probably quite a lot more still, you see. So um, it's been one case after another. And... Uh, I must be doing something right because I've actually only had one rejection in these in these well in these last 25 years, frankly, and that's from the Dutch government, and that's still something I will appeal when um, if and when I find time. But I, I'm not getting any younger, so <laughs> maybe maybe my son will take that one on. So your family was the first. I believe, to file a major post-war restitution claim with the Netherlands. Is that right? Um, well, we all filed uh, right after the war. Uh, and, uh, I mean, the sort of main collecting families, you know. Uh, and like my family, um, say the Houtstickers, they, 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 they was, it was a similar situation where Desi Houtsticker was forced to buy a lot of things back and then she was forced to sign a waiver on other things and it was all quite unconscionable. And then really it, 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 the whole process died a death um, by 1960 
And uh, then there were no restitutions until uh, my family, along with Christine Koenigs from the famous Koenigs collection and uh, Mariah von Sacher, of the, the, who is the Houtsticker heiress, we lobbied the World Jewish Congress, who in turn lobbied the Dutch government. And, and ultimately, there was a vote in Parliament and this is about 99, and they uh, established uh, they by decree a committee that became known as the Eckhart Committee, and then the Eckhart Committee, you know, spawned what is now the Restitution Committee, and they we, we were the first effective restitution um, in 2002 when when we got back about uh, nearly. 300 I mean paintings but mostly antiques furniture sculptures but there were about a dozen paintings included in that and, and from that point on the house stickers didn't get their restitution until about um, three years later and and so on and uh, so yes we, we were the first of in the modern era and um and then i i mean i was part of the the swiss bank claims originally and um so we've we've been involved as about as much as we can and anyway i mean with the with the dutch i'm not, i'm not finished right now i i have a quite a, an important claim against the city of rotterdam and the restitution committee are acting as a an arbitration board in, in this particular case. So it, it, it just goes on, you know. I mean, so when they did make that quite big restitution to, to me and my family, uh, I was quite right to ask, well, that's very nice, but how do we know this is everything? And and lo and behold, of course, in dribs and drabs, I since that date, I've had about um, six or seven successful restitutions from the, the, the Dutch Restitution Committee. So, um, and, and as I say, I have another one pending and, and, and another one actually I'm about to file uh, against a museum in The Hague. <laughs> so, um, so there we are. Uh, keeps us busy. Several families um, in recent years have been denied claims by the Dutch Restitution Committee, and one in particular, mm -hmm. uh, Irma Klein, who was trying to get her heirs were trying to get back a Kandinsky painting. And yes. it, if if not the only basis, at least one of the reasons that the Dutch gave them, government gave was that it was in the public interest for them to keep the painting at the Stedelijk Museum. And yes. I just wonder if have you. Um, encountered that kind of basis when you've been denied your claims uh not yet no because as i say i've actually only had one claim well or, or two to be exact but one was just for literally one dish uh so i've for, and i've had one claim for one painting denied but it wasn't on those grounds i i'm well aware of, of these circumstances and i've actually written quite extensively to the restitution committee complaining about their change in direction because they were not this was not the way they were set up to operate uh in back when you know in in 2000 when when the committee was established um 
they have since evolved this new kind of revisionist thinking about oh museums are people too uh, in a way uh, and they have feelings and they care about um what's in storage and 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 on top of which the restitution committee have tried to sort of infuse a concept of um good as and bad as as h-e-i-r-s um i i i fall into fortunately the good as category because i am a direct descendant so i'm as as close as you can get given the generational gap um but there are of course inevitably other claims filed by you know the the ex-wife of a great nephew or something you see what i'm saying but they are legally you know based on somebody's will um the rightful heir nonetheless but but the, the the Dutch have been now arguing that where well, they're not real family, they're not really connected with the actual artwork, and therefore the museums have a stronger connection with that artwork. And of course, I mean, my argument has been well, um, they are but museums; they're 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 custodians, and. Um, Certainly, in the case of 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 what I'm claiming now in, in the city of Rotterdam, the, these are wonderful uh, uh, Maiolica dishes from the Italian Renaissance that uh, were donated to this museum. Um, you know, after the war, so the museum never paid for them. They they, they ha- they've never you know, put out any expense. Um, they've actually had our dishes free of charge for over half a century and and my argument is they should consider themselves lucky that that's a great loan you know whether whichever however you calculate it um it's about and it's about time they did the right thing and uh you know museums aren't people and and anyway the bottom line as i've also tried to you know reason with the committee is that we have basic international laws which need to be followed and one is the right of inheritance and another one is the right to private property and so because that's another part of their argument is families like mine when they get something back uh, and and this is i've even had this in the states you know when, when i get something back i sell it and more often than not i sell it quickly rather than slowly especially while say my my dear aunt was still alive and she was the last direct uh who you know who who'd lived through the war um this was her delayed inheritance and the sooner she got it you know she's already waited <laughs> she had already waited you know decades and decades so the sooner she got it the better but i mean there was even an article once when i sold a painting in new york that uh, had been recovered from the art gallery at Rutgers University and I got there was a nasty story about me in the New York Times okay. but it, it you know this is even in the New York Times maybe they don't even realize it but this is basically veiled anti-semitism because this is this is what was leveled at my father and uh, say the the Houtsteker family and so many others after the war was here come the Jews uh, after the money and that's all they're interested in. And of course, you know, so if I get something back and I sell it, you know, 
that accusation is is thrown at our heads yet again. I mean, the reality is that we used to be a very wealthy family in Germany, but that was before Hitler came to power. And uh, so now if I get something back, I have to sell it. Also, I mean, fortunately, there are quite a few heirs in my family, like like in any other family of, of claimants. So when I make file a claim, I'm not just doing it for myself. I represent all my cousins and all their children and so on. So if I file a claim for something, say, for my great-grandfather's collection, we're actually talking about over 20 direct heirs. And... Um, you know, we can't cut a painting up. So the only way to divide it fairly is to monetize it. And, and that's why things do go to auction, you know. Um, but but it, it it's strange because in a way we're being lectured about what we ought to do with our own um, assets. You know, I mean, because people don't lecture you about you know selling a house or selling a car or selling stocks and bonds but art is is put on a different pedestal and somehow you know anyway it's, it's i'm digressing here it's it but yes the, the the restitution committee in holland and and you know they're symptomatic of 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 revisionism right across europe um they're i think all a bit stunned at how much they've had to give back since uh, our first restitution in 2002. Or you see what I'm saying, that now there, there's, there's been 20 years, roughly, of restitutions in, in, in the current phase in, in Western Europe and North America, and a lot of museums and institutions are all crying out, well, where does this end? I mean, of course, you know, <laughs> We all know the truth is, is over a third of all the artworks in Europe changed hands during the Nazi era. So uh, <laughs> this uh, isn't going to end for a you know long time soon. But um, there we are. And the injustice of the Dutch government is, to me, seems to be further highlighted by even the way they uh, dealt with your father about his family home, Bozbeck. Oh, yes. And I had read that uh, you might try to um, possibly follow up on that. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, yes, I'd love to. Uh, that's still a, you know, a sort of bone that's stuck in my throat um, that I clearly can't swallow. Legally, it's, it, it's very complicated because technically, well, technically, my, my, my father was returned the house after the war although i mean it took him 10 years of going through one court after another but the the problem with that was that when he finally got it um he he was also immediately saddled with all sorts of unpaid uh taxes and mortgage dues or that had all been accruing interest so the concept believe it or not was that um, a Dutch Jew in a concentration camp was still expected to pay his mortgage. And, and of course, my grandfather you know, didn't. Uh, not sure anybody did. And uh, after the war, the Dutch government argued that they couldn't rewrite the laws, just to tax laws or whatever, to suit just a, a minority percentage of the population. 
So they said that you know that the the you know our, we can't change this just for you. The the laws stand, and therefore, um, on paper, my my grandfather hadn't paid his property taxes and so on, and they'd been accruing interest, and therefore my father um, had to sell the house the next month in order to pay all, all the bills. Otherwise, he would have gone to court again, you know, and uh, even put in jail. So, um, so yes, the house came and went. And um, it, from a legal, from a moral aspect, it's clear what happened. But from a legal aspect, um, it, it's not so easy. And because I'm um, kind of a, a one-man show here, um, I focus on what I can resolve and um i always wanted to do something about the house but in these last 25 years i've never really stopped to, to come up for air you know there's been one case after another and more often than not five cases at once so um in in you know in, in various countries around the world and uh i you know, there's another issue of of shares we had in in the bank that we founded in Germany, which ha have not been settled either. There are all sorts of <laughs> legal financial aspects. It was a big estate, and 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 we were, as I said, we we were a very wealthy family before the war. So um, there were assets everywhere and um, I, I'm just doing what I uh, look I'll be honest with you I, I focus on the art because uh, I'm looking for beautiful things and, and that's what makes what I do tolerable um, I, I can't spend my life hunting for you know missing insurance policies um, even though there are plenty of in missing insurance policies as well. Uh, you sort of, oh, the, the cars are gone as well. You know, I mean, where where do you where do you stop? Um, uh, at some point, I'm probably going to have to let it go. I don't know if my children will have the 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 desire, the wherewithal, and um, the skills I've developed over the years and the knowledge of, of, of what took place, which is now, um, you know, 75 years ago, it's a long time ago. So um, there are going to be some things we're just going to have to let go of because uh, it, it's just not feasible anymore. Based on your decades of experience doing this, what do you see as the main impediments currently for Holocaust victims or their heirs to pursue their claims? Um, well, so much. I mean, the, 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 the first thing that in, impedes uh, an heir to a, a, a lost collection or a lost anything really is the fact that there isn't enough information that's available and um, though archives have been opened and a vast amount has been written, there's still too many gaps because the Germans, I mean, they, they left records of what they like to think were legitimate transactions, but there's a lot that was done even behind some of the top Nazis' backs. I mean, I, I have a, you know, a, a case where two uh, German dealers who were working for Goering 
they sold going the the sort of obvious good stuff they were collecting, but they were salting away a lot for themselves. And and these transactions were, were, were never written down. The the what I'm claiming for now in in, in the Hague. Um, from a supposedly respectable Dutch family who donated these things in the 70s. And yet I, I discovered not that long ago that the, the man who had them in his possession, his brother was uh, the, the, the Dutch civil servant who was actually in charge of the Dutch police during the, the war. And, and so, and yet, you know, so the point is this, this so-called respectable family doesn't have any paperwork whatsoever in connection with my family and yet they have lots of our things and and, and unfortunately because you know nine possession is nine tenths of the law the onus is on families like mine claimants to produce that evidence and if we don't succeed the family in possession today keeps possession that's that you know so it, it, it's a huge stumbling block and, and you have to have an appetite uh, to, to delve into the past in order to do what I do. Um, I have to read about all the Nazis that were involved in this huge scale theft. And uh, so I, I'm going to an uh, you know, a history that I'd actually rather avoid. I've had to go to Germany many, many times. And to be honest, um, I still feel uncomfortable in Germany. So, and, and I'm sure there are lots of other families and and their heirs who, who, who feel the same way as me and, and just think, well, you know, we're, we're happy in Brazil, we're happy in Australia, we're happy in Israel. We're, you know, um, we don't want to go back in time to uh, dig up what happened again um, because it's painful. So, so you you've got to have a sort of an iron will to to um, persevere in these cases, and then you actually have to prove what we all know happened, but you still have to, you have to document it. And, and that's very difficult. And of course, the possessor of whatever is going to sit back and say, well, this case isn't, you know, we're not convinced. And you, you, you wouldn't be able to convince a judge. So if I can't convince the person who's got whatever, and we certainly can't convince their lawyers and no doubt the, the, a judge, if, if we actually were prepared to spend a vast amount of money taking somebody to court. So, you know, that's that's what we're up against. Um, it, <laughs> and so I, it, it's not surprising that most families don't do this. Well, and your uh, perseverance is... Uh, very impressive, um, because you've dealt with, like you said, the Dutch government and private collectors, as well as auction houses that have fought you yeah, from the beginning. Yeah. Well, and and West German authorities. I I I, I went up against a a French government panel. <laughs> I mean, it was me on my own against there were about eighteen of them. You know, the sort of huge tribunal and. Anyway, I actually won my case at the end of the day, but I think as they were so, the, the, the chairman of this panel was primarily impressed that I 
was able to conduct myself in French. And so, so for, from a sort of chauvinist point of view, they, most of them voted in my favor because they liked the fact that I'd gone to France and, you know, was doing this in their language. And, um, the, the merits of my case were kind of like <laughs> lost. But anyway, so yes, it's, it's, it's an international, you know, as I said, we had, we had not one, but two Swiss bank claims. I mean, it, it's, it's all over. I mean, and uh, I'm fortunate I've never had to try and make a claim in Russia or in Argentina. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> what was it about, of all the pieces that you have documented were taken from your uh, family's collections, what was it about the Orpheus clock that caused you to title your book in honor of it? Yeah, um, well, a lot of things. I mean, one, it's a strikingly beautiful piece. And um, also, you know, there, there's some, sort of something slightly poetic about the, you know, the movement of time, the the, the vicissitudes in a family's history, the ups and downs. And uh, but also very significantly, at least for me, actually for, for our family as, as such, um, it was the first direct restitution we'd received from Germany. I mean, it wasn't the because, you know, Germany's a federal country like like the u.s so you it's very rare to get something back from the federal government you have to deal with the government of bavaria or of your lower saxony or so on anyway so so this was the, the government of baden-württemberg and uh yeah, so one it was the the germans actually giving us something back the only other real restitution restitution compensation might would you believe my father was compensated by this time the federal government in Germany um, for very strange story my grandmother's fur coats because believe it or not um, they arrived in the concentration camp my grandmother wearing an ankle length fur coat because um, they they didn't you know it, it was a ruse the Germans had misled them and uh, they had no idea where they were going I, I mean until the last minute so so my my dad actually got compensation for his his mother's coats um, so anyway the Orpheus clock was the first serious restitution for, from a, a German of, a, official body and also um, technically the clock still belonged to my father's undivided collection uh, as opposed to most of the things i claim were part of my grandfather's collection so there are two we two collections i i hunt for um this forced me to revive the the gutsman family the family trust and create a contract a compact with all my remaining cousins all all over the world and that it was even that was much harder than <laughs> proving to to the Germans that the clock should be given back to us. Uh, and uh, this was a disparate. This is more often the problem. It goes back to your earlier question. Families are broken by the Holocaust, by the war, and are split up and find themselves all over the place. So even though one individual might want to create a you know a, go for something and and file a claim um there's no point in them doing it unless they have the backing of all of the rest of their family 
Otherwise, that's a whole. That's another issue. That even though somebody is the grandson or great grandson, uh, the possessor can turn around and say, "Yes, but how do I know you represent what? If I give something back to you, to you, how do I know that your cousin in Canada isn't going to sue me next year for not getting anything?" Um, and, and so, therefore, I had to create a, a family contract that unified us. Uh, and that was the first time a lot of these cousins had actually spoken. You know, there were there were some in London that I had, for instance, had never spoken to as a child growing up. We were only a few miles apart, but my father and their father had feuded. They all were so broken by what had happened uh, and sadly some were you know fighting over the crumbs you know the, and, and, and people were everybody was dissatisfied because obviously you know only a fraction of what they had had remained had survived so um there, there were these family feuds and so this orpheus clock symbolizes me reunited the family as well uh, and that's something i'm i'm very proud of you see what i'm saying that i'm now friends with the son of, of the man who wouldn't even give my father the time of day so so that that's an achievement and that's also actually you know i should have mentioned it earlier a huge impediment to most families is that all you need is one dissenting cousin in brazil who doesn't want to sign on the, you know, just for the, you know, wants to be <laughs> argumentative, and uh, you're you can't file a claim because you're you're not you don't represent the heirs, you know. It, it was easy when it was my father and his sister, but you know, 50, 60, 70 years later, it, it it's diverse. It's it's spread all over. Anyway, so so there we are. So the Orpheus clock was you know was a very happy, and I got I got a German minister to shake my hand and apologize, uh, which which in in itself is you know quite something. So 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 it was a a bit a big event for me. Also the the clock the it's it's interesting. You see the, the this German dealer called Julius Burler had been you know detained by the American army at the end of the war and he was ordered to return everything from this particular inventory. And, and more or less he did, but this clock and the other clock, the Reinhold clock, um he couldn't bear obviously to part with. So he actually buried it in the sand by the, this, uh, this Bavarian lake in the back of the, their storage facility. Uh, and then it was smuggled into Switzerland and then, you know, and given a, you know, sold you know, <laughs> with, under a different name to a German industrialist. And so it's quite, you know, it's, it, it's amazing. That, and yet it survives. And, and, and I found it, uh, tracked it down. So, so um, it, it, it represents a lot. That's stunning. <laughs> thank yeah. you so much for being on the podcast, Simon. And thank of you course. for sharing your family's story and for all the work you've done to improve the law and the policy regarding the restitution of looted art. Well, it, it, it's an honor to, you know, um, do something worthwhile. And uh, if, if I can help anybody else along the way, all, all, all the better. Um, I, can, I can go to bed at night actually feeling proud about what I do you know and I have a legacy to, to leave to my family so um, and you know like my dear old aunt I've got a lot of people talking 
who, who, who otherwise would have, for one reason or another, swept us under the carpet. So, yeah, it's been, it's, it's, it's tough, but it's been very rewarding. There will be a link in the show notes to learn more about the Orpheus Clock. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe on your preferred platform, and it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review and tag Warfare of Art and Law Podcast. You can also email your comments to Stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi, everyone. It's Stephanie. And every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate, all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.